I was eight years old the first time I used the F word. It was a very memorable moment, and I'm not here to you know brag on that moment or be proud of that moment, but I remember it. I was playing touch football on the playground at lunchtime and uh, came to the end of the game, and we lost, and I'm a very competitive person. I was very frustrated, and so we went back to our little dot on the blacktop where our class lined up to go back inside, and uh, one of my classmates who was an opponent in the game just kept needling me, and uh, eventually a word came out of me that I had never, ever spoken before. It wasn't a word I heard in my house, but I had heard it, and it just, it just blurted out, and I was as surprised as anybody. Um, and I can remember being terrified that I was going to be in trouble. My second grade teacher, her name was Mrs. Borshevitz. She was six feet tall and terrifying, and so uh, I just so scared, but luckily none of my classmates ratted me out. But I remember walking back into class thinking, why did I say that? Like, what was, what was that about? Like, I wasn't premeditated. It just, it just happened. And I'd like to tell you that that was the only time in my life that a word ever came out like that or something I did ever happen like that. But, but you know, that's not the truth. That's not, that's not true. There were other moments where I would say, why did I do that? Like, what was I thinking? And it wasn't just to people who um, long-term were not going to be consequential. I don't even remember those second-grade classmates. But it's, it's become people who are a lot closer to me that I care about a lot more. I can remember sitting and, and counseling with my wife four years ago, and we were sitting there talking, and she shared something with me in that setting that, that I had done that was, that was profoundly hurtful. Not only was I like, man, I, I did that, but I was also like, I don't remember doing that. I mean, how, how terrible is it to like go, I, I hurt this person I care about, but I don't even remember it. And so I can remember that day driving away going, how could I do something like that? How could that come out of me? Maybe you can relate to this in some way. Maybe you've had a moment like this where something you was, was said or something was done and you're like, where did that come from? And, and, and we have language for this that we, we commonly use. Maybe you've used these phrases like, I don't know what came over me. Or, or I don't know where that came from. Anybody ever said that? Or maybe the biggest one of all, that's not who I am. We say these things and we do these things, and a lot of us have had these experiences where, where something comes out of us and we're just bewildered by it. We're as shocked as anybody else. But here's the truth. And I say this because I love you, and I want us to be honest with each other. I want us to be honest with God, and I want us to grow. Deep down, truthfully, we do know. And that really was us that did that. That really was us that said that. And so today, if you're taking notes and you've got one of these that you came in with, I'd encourage you to, to finish the big idea. The big idea is this. What comes out of you is the best indicator of what's inside you. What comes out of you, especially in those moments where you're thinking and talking too fast or you're moving so fast that you can't put on your best behavior, you can't edit a word, you can't filter, it's just completely genuine. In those moments, what comes out of you is the best indicator of what's inside of you. 
Now, this is important because we're in a series. We started last week. If you missed it, we'd encourage you to go online to our website and watch that message from last week. The series is called All of You, Learning to Love God with Our Heart, Soul, Mind, and Strength. We, we learned last week that God doesn't just want us to love him with the parts of us that we feel are strengths. We feel like our areas that are places of comfort, but also the places that are uncomfortable or difficult or weaknesses. God wants all of that in relationship to him. And we said that the key verse we were going to come back to, I challenged you last week to memorize this verse, is Mark 12, 30, where Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And so each week in this series, we're taking one week to talk about each of those ideas. So I bolded heart because that's where we're going to start today, loving God with our heart. And we said last week that this, this, this statement, the great commandment, has its roots hundreds of years before this in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament in this statement called the Shema that's at the heart of the Jewish faith. And there in Deuteronomy, it was written in Hebrew, where, where Moses says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. That word heart is the Hebrew word labab. Think kebab, but with an L, labab. And it means heart, the inner person, mind, will, and heart. For those of you who are really into details, you may have noticed last week that in Deuteronomy, there is three things in the list, and in Mark, there's four. Mark is heart, soul, mind, strength. Deuteronomy only has three. That's because here, this word labab includes both the mind and the heart. That's how the Hebrew saw metaphysics was that these were one thing. When we get to the New Testament and we have Mark 12 and Jesus says, love God with all your heart, the Greek word there is the word cardia, which is where we get our word cardiac or cardiologist or cardiology, all those pieces. And, and the word cardia means the effective center of our being. One commentator says it's the desire producer that makes us tick. So your heart in this setting is not the, the four chambers, the atria and the ventricles. It's, it's the center of what makes you, you. It's the place where all of your desires and wills and, and longings come together that makes you tick and sets you apart. And this is really important because that's what Jesus was constantly getting after. In his book, You Are What You Love, author James K.A. Smith talks about this. He says that when it comes to our, our habits and our actions, what, what transforms us are not when we change what we do, but when we change what we love. And he remarks on the Gospels here. He says, Jesus doesn't encounter Matthew and John or you and me and ask, what do you know? He doesn't even ask, what do you believe? He asks, what do you want? Again and again, you'll see Jesus in the Gospels going to people who their, their issues are obvious. A man is blind. A man is lame. Uh, somebody can't hear. And he'll say, what do you want? And it's like everybody's going, Jesus, it's as clear as day what they want. But Jesus asks that question so that that person can wrestle with that question and express what they want. Because that want comes deep down in their heart. Our wants, our wills, our desires, that's the place from which we love God. And so there's a passage that is uh, really well known where Jesus gets at this, and it's in Matthew 15. So if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. If you're new to the Bible, that's totally cool. There's an index in the beginning of your Bible that tells you where all the books are. 
and you're looking for the second section in the Bible called the New Testament, the first book in that section is called Matthew, and it's the Gospel of Matthew, or the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew was one of Jesus' closest followers. He lived with him day in and day out for three years. He recorded everything he saw, and he recorded that in this book. And in, in Matthew 15, when the chapter opens, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees, and, and they're talking about all of these laws and rituals that happen around hand-washing and cleanliness. And Jesus' disciples were not following those as closely as the Pharisees would have liked. And so Jesus then has some very clear kind of statements and thoughts about that that we're going to dive into here. So I'd encourage you, if you have your Bible or not, I'd encourage you to stand up. We're going to read and honor God's Word this morning in uh, Matthew 15, 10 through 20. Here's what the text says. Summoning the crowd, Jesus told them, listen... And understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came up and told him, do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? He replied, every plant that my heavenly father didn't plant will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind guide the blind, both will fall into a pit. Then Peter said, explain this parable to us. Do you still lack understanding? He said, don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a person. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, and slander. These are the things that defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile a person. Jesus, we pray that we would recognize what the Pharisees missed and what Peter struggled to understand. We pray that we would understand what it looks like to love you with our heart and what has to happen for our heart to be able to come to a place where we can do that. We pray that you would use your word in our lives. and We pray that we would receive it as you deliver it today. In your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Now, when I was a kid, one of the things our family loved to do was movie night. And so I remember one of the movies that we remember that we watched growing up, both in the theaters and then at home, we got a VHS of it and we just wore it out, was the movie Apollo 13. Came out in 1995 and these three guys, Bill Paxton, Kevin Bacon, and uh, Tom Hanks, uh, are the three main characters, and they're, they're the astronauts in Apollo 13 that had planned to go and land on the moon following in the pattern of Apollo 11, but, but they weren't able to. Everything went wrong, and so the whole world was enraptured as they were trying to get these three guys back home. And, and that, that, you know, terrible, you know, stressful time began with a five-word phrase that has now become well-known even for people who've never seen the movie. And that five-word phrase is what? Oh, man, you guys have culture. I like you. It says, yes, Houston, we have a problem. And, 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 and there is power in declaring a problem because once you have identified a problem and declared a problem, you then can address it. But until you know you have a problem, you can't fix it. So today I'm declaring a problem, and I'm going to say, Cornerstone, we have a problem, and it's a threefold problem. It's got three parts that we're going to unpack this morning. The first part is this. Our hearts have defiled us. 
Now, I picked that word for you to write down because my gut is, is that you probably didn't use that word this week. It's not a common word, but it's incredibly important because in a short series of verses, Jesus repeats this word over and over and over again. The same thing that's true with the people that are in your life is true about Jesus. When you hear something again and again and again from somebody, it probably is them communicating to you subconsciously how important it is. So watch how often Jesus uses this word. Matthew 15, 11, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles, number one, a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person, number two. But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a person, three. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immorality, thefts, false testimonies, and slander. These are the things that defile a person, But eating with unwashed hands does not defile a person. Five times in ten verses, Jesus uses this word defile. And that word defile, its meaning in the dictionary in this sense is to be impure, especially ceremonially or sexually. And, And in the world of the first century for a Jew, to be ceremonially or sexually pure was incredibly important. It was the only way that you could go to the temple to worship. It was, it was all of these laws and, and traditions and disciplines were attached to it. It was an essential part of following God, was embracing this purity. And so Jesus is talking about this over and over and over again because the people he's speaking to are obsessed with it. And they're convinced That because his disciples are not doing these external things, they are now impure. And what happened in that day is the same thing that happens in our day, is we tend to think that that we are somehow defiled by our environment. That defilement is somehow an external thing. People will, will tell me, Scott, it's so hard to follow Jesus in my workplace, in my job. Because people there just, they they don't know anything about God. They don't want anything to do with the ways of God. There are all these things happening. It's so hard to stay pure there. They're like, Scott, when I'm online, it's so hard to stay pure. There's all these things, not even that I'm seeking out. They just end up in my feed. It's so hard to not be defiled. Scott, we live in this this culture and this this country that that is defined by all of these things that aren't of God, that are against God in our politics and our culture. Scott, at my age, in my generation, it is so hard to remain pure. And don't get me wrong, there are obstacles. There are difficulties. There are some environments that make it easier and some environments that make it harder. But Jesus is radically opposed to this idea that we are fundamentally defiled by our environment. The teaching of the scripture from hundreds of years before this says, no, the problem is not your environment. Jeremiah 17, the prophet says, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? See, there is wickedness, there is evil, there is defilement, and there is sin out there. But there's also a heart that's defiled in here. And and yeah, your, your workplace, your family, your friends online, your country may make it hard to not become defiled. But even if you were the only one in a perfect environment, there would still be a problem because you carry around with you this defiled heart. 
And it goes everywhere you go. And that's why all the way back in Proverbs, the writer said, guard that heart above all else, for it is the source of life. Another translation says, for everything you do flows from it. And that's why I started by saying that we have a problem because when it comes to loving God with all of our hearts, we do have a problem and it's worse than we think. And so if we're going to love God with our hearts, then we need to get honest about the true state of our hearts. And that's where Jesus starts with these Pharisees. He says, hey, the problem is not the hand washing. The problem is your heart. So second part of the problem, number two. What we're doing to clean ourselves from the outside, it, it isn't working. So, so a lot of us over the last couple years, we have become experts in washing knees. All of us have got a master's degree in washing hands over the last couple years. If you're like me, when you go to a public bathroom, you kind of watch other people wash their hands, you know? Maybe you're like me. Sometimes you judge them for how poorly they wash their hands. Yesterday, I was, in a, I was in a bathroom and somebody walked out without washing their hands. And I was like, mm, you know, but in the day of Jesus, hand washing was a big deal because there were, there were all of these laws and traditions and disciplines built around this, that when you would sit down for a meal as a Jew, there was all these hand washings that happened. And there were all these stipulations around what you ate so that you would be pure. And Jesus is, is speaking about these laws because God the Father gave them to the people of Israel. But along the way, the purpose for these got twisted. The way to understand them got twisted. And so what happened is over time, the people became very religious, and they bought into this idea that change would come from the outside in. That if I could wash my hands well enough and lock down my diet enough and, and get in the right environments enough and avoid the wrong environments, that somehow inside of me, would stay clean, would be clean. And from his very first words there in Matthew 15, 11, Jesus says, hey, you, your cleanness is, is a heart thing. It's not a hand thing. It's not a diet thing. And Jesus in that moment begins to create some enemies. In the text, it says that the disciples came and they, they whispered to Jesus. I'm kind of imagining one of them while he's talking, walking up to them and kind of... And they said to Jesus, do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? Hey, Jesus, FYI, out there in the back, there are some people in the back who aren't fans of you. You're making some enemies of some powerful people. We thought you should know. And I think this is a good time to step back and remember a basic truth. Jesus is offensive. If you have a Jesus, an image of Jesus, you're worshiping Jesus, and that Jesus never offends you and never offends anybody else, somehow you've misrepresented Jesus. Because if Jesus doesn't ever offend you, one of two things is happening. You're either reading him wrong or you're being dishonest. There are probably times that I say stuff that you don't like. Maybe there are times that I offend you. It's kind of the challenge of the work that I do. But, but I can tell you that, that if Jesus was preaching here today and he preached the rest of this year, or maybe he was my guest preacher for my whole sabbatical this summer, some of you would leave. 
You would. He would offend you. He would say things that you didn't like or didn't agree with. You'd go on Facebook and post about him. You know, leave a Google review about him. How do I know this? Because this is what happens in here. Go read John 6. He says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And if you won't, you'll have no part of me. And it says, many people that day stopped following him. Jesus offends. And, and one of the ways that he offends our modern sensibilities is some people get offended because of his exclusivity. You say, Scott, what do you mean? Many people today go, how on earth can you say, Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through you? That's offensive. How arrogant, how intolerant. You're the only way. Yeah, he is. He's the only one who's come for you. He's the only one who gave his life for you, and he's the only one who's not in the grave. He's the only one who can say that. Muhammad is in a grave. Buddha is in a grave. Joseph Smith is in a grave. None of them died for you. They all died, but they didn't die for you, and then none of them came back from the dead. Go find the grave of Jesus today. If you can, it's empty. That's why he can say this. But other people are offended on the opposite way because Jesus also has inclusivity. He's too inclusive. How on earth can you forgive someone like that, Jesus? How can someone like the thief on the cross find grace after all they've done? You Christians, you just, you want to forgive everybody. Yep. You know what they've done? Yep. And we know what we've done too. Some people are offended because it's too narrow, and some people are offended because it's open to too many people. And what John Stott says in his book, Basic Christianity, is so true. He says, if you read the Bible, you'll see that nobody ever met Jesus and had a moderate reaction to him. There are only three reactions to Jesus in the Bible. They either hated him and wanted to kill him, they were afraid of him and wanted to run away, or they were absolutely smitten by him and they tried to give their whole lives to him. See, you can't look at Jesus and go, eh. Not if you read his words. If you read his words, there are no moderate, mild reactions to him. Either he's a psycho, you think he's wrong and you hate him. You think he's really telling the truth and you give all of yourself to him. Or you run away from him because you know if he finally catches you, everything's going to have to change. And that's why when Jesus says this, it's so challenging to those who are listening that what comes out of you is the best indicator of what's inside of you because some of us don't want to face what's inside of us. We don't want to look in the mirror. And here's what I would say to you if that's you. It's great that you don't want to face what's inside of you, but the rest of us have to deal with it every day. Right? I mean, what, what's inside of you comes out of you and it lands on other people around you. So unless you deal with and face what's inside of you, it's going to keep coming out of you and landing on everybody else around you. That's why, that's why faith was personal, but it can never be private. Because faith isn't just going to affect you. It's going to transform you and have an impact on everybody else around you third part of this problem here is that we can't fix our hearts on our own. 
One of the, the, the places that I've failed and stumbled is there will be times that, that I'm doing something and it's not working, and I don't want to give up what I'm trying to do to fix it, you know? Like, I think this is going to work. So what I tell myself is not that I'm doing the wrong thing. I tell myself I'm not doing enough of that thing. And so what I do is I go, you know, I just need more. I got to do this more. That's what happens in this text. They go, okay, we need to wash our hands for longer. We need to scrub harder. We need to lock down our diets tighter. We need to be more legalistic. Friends, more of the wrong thing is not right. If it's not working, don't do it more. Stop and try something else. And so Jesus comes in here to these people who've, who've taken the law and they've blown it out into hundreds and hundreds of laws that govern every area of life in a way to try to bring change from the outside in. And somewhere along the way, something got missed. This week I was preparing this message and I stumbled on this teaching that Ray Dillard did. He was a New Testament scholar. He passed away in 1993, so he probably gave this sermon when I was out in the playground using bad words. And I don't know how I missed what he shares in this message. I, I've got two degrees in the Bible. I've read the whole Bible cover to cover multiple times. I've even taught on Zechariah. But, but Zechariah is in that section of your Bible that you don't typically read called the Minor Prophets. We did a whole series on it the summer of 2021. It's, it's the, the Minor Prophets are called Minor not because of their importance, but because of their length. There are a bunch of shorter prophetic books. There's 12 of them. And Zechariah is one of them. And, and in this message, Dillard, who's an expert on this era of history and what happened in this part of the world, he, he looks at what happens in Zechariah 3. And in Zechariah 3, the prophet gets this vision of, of what's happening in the temple. And so I don't presume that everybody is an expert at all of the Bible. So I'm going to kind of give you background on this so you understand why this is important. The temple was the center place of worship for the Hebrew people. And this is kind of the inner part of the temple. There was an outer part, an outer courtyard. But the people could step into this part of the temple having followed the 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 cleanliness laws and the purity laws we talked about in this message. They were able to come in this outer part of this temple, but, but once you get closer to the actual temple building, only the priests can step into here. And so there's a porch here, and then the holy place here, and then the most holy place here. Another different image is here. And so the priests would come up these stairs from the porch. They would, they would step into the temple, and in this section was the place where they would, they would do their duties every day throughout the year. But then one day a year, one person, and only one person, the high priest that year, would move from the holy place to the most holy place, also called the Holy of Holies. And, and, and that priest would move through these um, curtains here into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And, and, and on that place and in that day on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, he would offer sacrifices for all of the people. And because, you know, they were afraid he would do it wrong, they would attach a rope to his leg in case God killed him, that they could drag him down the stairs and bring him back. I mean, it was his high, high stakes job. And so they would, they would go into the most holy place here, the priest would, on the Day of Atonement, and make a sacrifice. And so this was a kind of an artwork of the high priest doing that work. He's wearing a special robe, and um, that happens on Yom Kippur. But what, what Dillard helped me see was all of the work that was done in advance. The high priest would leave his family, 
where he lived, and he would go live for the week before Yom Kippur in a special apartment that had been prepared for him. It had been cleaned from head to toe. Imagine your grandma's spring cleaning on steroids. It was the cleanest apartment it could be. And he steps in there, and the doors get locked, and he stays in that apartment for a full week. The food is brought to him. He doesn't prepare any of it. He doesn't clean any of it. He stays in there by himself in isolation so he can be clean. The night before Yom Kippur, he, he typically stays up all night reading and praying, and often other priests would sit outside his door and read scripture to him and pray for him to encourage him. And then that morning, on the morning of Yom Kippur, he goes to the temple, and he arrives at the temple, and he steps behind a curtain, and, and he takes off his clothes, not in a way that you can see, like the full show, you know, but you kind of know what's happening back there. He takes off his robe, he cleans himself from head to toe, he puts on a brand new white robe, and then he goes into the temple and he makes a a sacrifice for himself, for his own sin. That's number one. Then he comes back out, takes off that robe, cleans again from head to toe, puts on a brand new white robe, goes back in, and he sacrifices for the priests. Then, third time, comes back out, takes off that robe, cleans himself again from head to toe, puts on a brand new white robe, and goes and makes a sacrifice for all the sin of the people. And on that day, the sacrifice for the people involved two goats. One of the goats would be killed and would be the sacrifice for the atonement of the people. The other goat The high priest, Joshua, that year, not the same Joshua as the beginning of the Bible, hundreds of years to separate them, but Joshua, the high priest, would lay his hands on the goat and would put on the goat all of the sins of the people. This is the beginning of the word scapegoat. That's where that word comes from. That goat would be sent out out of the city into the wilderness. So so Zechariah is, is watching this happen, and God gives him a vision of all that he has done. Then Zechariah 3 3 happens. And Zechariah says, Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. How? This guy's body has, has to be raw from all of the washing and the cleansing. I mean, he's got the whitest of white robes on. And, and the English translation here just doesn't give you the full effect. The word filthy means covered in feces and urine. Like the the robe took a dip in the campground bathroom, you know, the big hole in the ground. How could he be covered in all of that after all that he had done? Because the change can't be done from the outside in. Here's what Zechariah says next. He says, so the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him and said, take off his feces and urine covered clothes. Then he said to him, see, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with festive robes. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your colleagues sitting before you. Indeed, these men are a sign, the ones who are going to put on this symbol of your cleanness that I'm about to bring my servant the branch. We'll come back to him in a second. Notice the stone I've set before Joshua. On that one stone are seven eyes. I will engrave an inscription on it. And this is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And I will take away the iniquity of this land in a single day. We'll come back to that too. 
On that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. What happens in Zechariah 3 is a prophecy about what Jesus would do. He was the branch. He was the branch that we would get grafted into as the new branches. John 15, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I remain in him, he'll bear much fruit. Zechariah records, on one day, all will be forgiven. What is that day? We just celebrated. It's Good Friday. And the name Joshua has significance because Joshua is the Aramaic name. Yeshua is the Hebrew translation. Jesus is the Greek translation. It's the same name. What Zechariah is saying is our best efforts to clean ourselves and close ourselves and make ourselves clean always end up the same. We're covered in a mess. Because that effort is this outside-in, make-yourself-clean work. And that's not how it works. Paul describes how it works in 2 Corinthians 5. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christianity and the gospel do not teach that you from the outside in make yourself clean. The teaching of Jesus is that you can't make yourself clean. Only he can make you clean from the inside out. So, what do we do? On the back of your hand, there's three things I want you to consider today. The first one is I want to invite you to considering inviting Jesus to do a heart transplant on you. The problem is not that you're a bad person, that you need to be better, try harder, work at it more. The problem is that fundamentally you have a sick and dead, defiled heart that you can't fix and you can't change. That's why God spoke to the prophet Ezekiel hundreds of years before Jesus came saying, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God wants to give you a new heart. And it doesn't do you any good for me to die and for for me to give you my heart. Because my heart is just as defiled as yours is. I need his heart. You need his heart. And here's how we do it. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. It starts here, and then it comes out here. So if you've never done this before, it's not easy, but it's simple. You admit your sin and your need for a new heart. You believe in Jesus for salvation, and he promises to give you a new heart, and then you commit to follow Jesus, A, B, C. But you can't love God with your heart until you allow God to deal with your heart. Number two, I want you to consider rejecting the path of religion and returning to the gospel. Some of you have done that. You've received that new heart, but you are experiencing now the temptation, which is to start with everything that God has done for you that you can't do for yourself, and then to leave that and go to the way of religion. Many of us start with the gospel, but we end up in religion. And religion says change comes from the outside in. And so you and your family, you're projecting this brilliant view to everybody else that everything's awesome. But on the outside, you know, it looks awesome, but on the inside, you know, it's not awesome. 
You're like, Scott, I'm just going to, okay, I'm going to be at church more. That's great. I'm going to my Bible more. That's great. I'm going to pray more. That's great. I'm going to give more. That's great. But none of that's going to actually fix your heart. None of that's actually going to make you what only God can make you because according to the gospel, the change comes from the inside out. So once that has happened, those things can cooperate with it. But change always starts in here. And then finally, number three, I'd I'd invite you to consider auditing your habits. I hope all of you mailed your taxes in this past week. If you didn't, hope you have an extension. A couple years ago, I got audited. My accountant let me know that the IRS had discovered we'd underpaid our taxes. Now, he did them, so he owned the mistake. I appreciate good accountant. But I had to pay more because they went in meticulously checked, and there was an area we underpaid. And so we, they audited that. And I think we ought to audit our habits, look at our habits and say, hey, what things am I doing that are helpful and what things could I start that are actually helpful? Not so that I can make my heart what it's not, but so that my habits can align with my heart and live out this new heart. This is why in Psalm 37, the psalmist says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. If you have this new heart, That heart comes from God, and as you delight in him, your desires align with his. That's why Paul in Philippians 4 says, And the peace of God, which transcends, sorry, surpasses in this translation, all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, because other stuff is trying to get in there. And your habits are one of the ways that you guard your heart. So today, when you leave, Out at the connection table that Josh talked about, we have a little tool for you we've created called Building New Habits Tool. It's also available for those of you who are online. It's two pages, and it allows you a way to kind of audit your habits and look at what you're doing to say, hey, are the things I'm doing aligned with my heart and cooperating with what God is doing inside of me? Because our habits are not inconsequential. They're not going to make us have a new heart, but they can help us express and live out that new heart. If you're watching online, this is the link. If you have a handout, that link's on there. But I hope you're seeing what we said last week was the big idea of this series, that following Jesus, it requires all of you, and it transforms all of you. And that's how we love God with all of our heart as we allow the transformation to begin there. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for the ways that you are at work in our lives. We thank you for your patience with us when we miss things or don't understand things or we start in a great place, but then we drift off to a not-so-great place. I pray that people who are here who've never experienced your heart change would open up their heart to you and trust you to do for them what they can't do for themselves. I pray they would admit their sin believe in you for salvation and commit their life to following you and allow you to replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh. I pray for those who've who've ended up in religion in this behavior modification, sin management, outside-in mindset that they would remember that change always starts from within, from that new heart. I pray that you'd show us the ways in which our habits aren't aligned with the heart you're building in us. Pray that you show us the places where stuff is coming out of us and affecting everybody else. So we need to to join you in dealing with what's on the inside of us. We thank you that your grace is real. Your forgiveness is true. And we thank you that you're making us new. We give you the glory this morning, Jesus. In your name we pray.